0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
1: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or
2: wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Take good care,
2: and we'll see you there. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days.
3: Anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. You're listening to episode seven of The Happiness Formula. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. In our last episode, we learned how medical practitioners can get more satisfaction at work and keep their patients healthier all at the same time. Today, Barry tackles happiness in the workplace. Yes, your boss should care how satisfied you are on the job because businesses that prioritize happy employees are some of the most successful in their industries. Go figure.
4: Here's Barry. In the last lecture, which was about wisdom and work, it was really all about one particular example, which is how what modern medical practice in affluent societies demands. And although it certainly is true that doctors need to know medicine, they also need to know how to relate to their patients so that they can be effective in influencing patients to be partners in care by changing how they live. When doctors practice in this way, they get much more satisfaction out of their work than they do simply by writing orders for lab tests and uh, you know scans and stuff like that. De- impersonal, depersonalized medicine is what's driving doctors out of medicine. So why does good work matter? It clearly matters in the case. Of these doctors that I described last time, but why does it matter in general? There's a, a management theorist named Jeffrey Pfeffer, who wrote a book a while ago called "The Human Equation," who talks about why good work matters, and here's here's his argument: Much of the effort people put in to their work is discretionary. In other words, they can really work hard or not so hard. And unless somebody is looking over their shoulder with a whip or counting keystrokes, it's not going to be so easy to tell the difference between really committed participation and somewhat half-hearted participation. And so what you want is high commitment employees since most of the work people do, the effort people put into work is discretionary, people with a high commitment are more likely to put that effort into work than people with a lower commitment. What does it mean to be high commitment? It means being committed to the mission of the organization. In the case of doctors, sort of obvious, treating disease, easing suffering, and it me involves commitment to the organization that's doing the work. You not only value the mission of the organization, you value the organization. You value the mission of Starbucks to make ridiculously expensive, good tasting coffee available to everyone. And you also value the way in which the organization operates, the way people treat one another. Those produce high commitment employees. The aim of a workplace should be to include a rich program of employee training, something that will challenge employees and enable them to develop. And what Jeffrey Pfeffer has found doing research on lots of companies in lots of different industries that The companies within an industry that engage in high performance, high commitment work practices are almost without exception the most successful companies in that industry. If you look at the survival rates of companies that issue initial public offerings, go public, the more high commitment the work practices are, the higher the percentage of those companies that survive the IPO. A 15% increase in the level of commitment to the work practices increases the chances of survival from 60% to 80%. Businesses with the highest employee engagement in their industry achieve more than four times the earnings per share growth that their competitors do. In other words, if you're running a business, even if you don't care at all about the welfare and the satisfaction of your employees, even if the only thing you care about is making your business as profitable as possible, the way to make your business as profitable as possible is to create a workplace environment Where your employees want to be, want to show up every day, want to put their best effort forward because they think that when they do what they do well, it makes a difference. And we'll see near the end of this course, despite this truth, how few workplaces are creating environments where their employees want to be. Pfeffer gives some examples of high commitment practices versus low commitment. Some years ago, there was a General Motors factory in Fremont, California. It was uniformly regarded as the single worst automobile plant in the United States in terms of productivity, in terms of defects, in the products in terms of labor management conflict in terms of worker morale it was a disaster automobile plant japan was interested in building a partnership with general motors so that it would be easier for japanese manufacturers this was toyota specifically to sell japanese cars in the united states and so they formed a partnership with General Motors to produce a new car called the Saturn, and they would produce it in this GM plant in Fremont, California, which was the worst automobile plant in the United States. And so Japan took over the running of the plant. Amazingly enough, with the same employees who had been working in this plant, when it was a GM plant, Toyota management succeeded in reducing the amount of labor hours per car by 50%. The same low commitment, low engagement, always being angry with management workforce when somehow management was taken over by Japanese uh, management practices, they all of a sudden became almost twice as productive. The reason, well, there were several reasons, but one reason was that the Japanese production process is one in which the discretion of the worker is respected. The expertise of the worker is respected. There are ropes hanging from the ceiling in Japanese automobile factories, and anyone on the assembly line can pull the rope and stop production if they detect a problem. You don't have to tell a supervisor who tells another supervisor who tells another supervisor before the line gets stopped. Everyone is responsible for quality control and quality maintenance, and this level of discretion and autonomy on the part of the workers reflecting a level of trust of the workers by management completely transforms the morale of the workforce. And so the worst automobile factory in the United States became the best automobile factory in the United States with virtually no change in personnel, just change in management. The tension is between a model of control Managers controlling the people they manage. So the management is rigid. The aim is always to lower cost, and the aim is always to make work more and more automatized versus commitment, where the focus is on training, where the kind of work that's done is flexible, not automatized, and where effort is made to build the employee's identification with the company and the company's goals. The practices of highly effective organizations in creating workplaces where people want to be include employment security. You don't have to worry that your head is on the chopping block every day when you show up for work. Now because of a commitment to employment security, it leads to more careful hiring. If it's going to be hard to fire someone or you're not going to want to fire someone, you're extremely careful about who you hire. But when you have employment security, it builds trust between the workers and the people who manage them because they know that the the workers know they're not going to have the rug pulled out from under them tomorrow if something goes wrong fit of the individual with the culture of the organization is more important than how intelligent workers are. It's more important than what their grades, high school or college grades are. The process of going through this hiring is expensive and time-consuming, but the turnover is dramatically reduced. The people who drop out are people who would have been on the job market the day they were hired anyway. So there's a kind of watchword among management consultants that says, if people come for the money, they'll leave for the money. You don't want people coming to work for you because of what they're getting paid, because they'll leave in a heartbeat if somebody offers to pay them a little bit more. You want them to come because of what you do, how you do it, how you treat them how you respect them. So these are the tools of a successful workplace organization and successful management. And their aim is to produce high commitment workers who do high quality work.
3: Right now, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Barry speaks about the importance of having a work mission that you believe in, even if it's as simple as helping someone in need of a new shirt.
0: This podcast is sponsored by RAMP. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this for the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. businesses that use ramp add up to five percent to their bottom line the first year if you're a decision maker adding ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made and now get 250 dollars when you join ramp for free just go to ramp.com easy ramp.com easy ramp.com easy cards issued by sutton bank and celtic bank members of dic terms and conditions apply i'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for god to give you your next step
4: In general, you get better performance when you pay people generously and not contingent on their own individual performance. In other words, if you have compensation practices where if the company does well, everyone benefits. And if the company does poorly, everyone suffers rather than singling out the stars and paying them more. You end up with people generally working up to the level of their compensation and not trying to get away with uh, getting something for nothing. The problem with performance-based pay is that while on the one hand, it enhances feelings of equity, on the other hand, it creates a kind of competition where workers are pitted against one another so that cooperative activity becomes harder and harder To achieve. You help the person uh, in the next cubicle, and that's going to hurt you when the time comes for the next salary negotiation. In the automobile industry, Japan, on average, puts 365 hours of training into each new employee. In the United States, 42. In other words, Japan devotes almost 10 times as much time to training employees as the U.S. does. Europe is somewhere in the middle. There's minimal hierarchy, minimal status difference, extensive sharing of information, partly because people don't feel like they're in competition with one another. And the result is more productive workplaces and more satisfied workers. So this is what it takes to produce an efficient workplace. And as a byproduct of producing an efficient workplace, you produce satisfied workers. And we see this in lots and lots of different work situations, not just the doctors. So think about the hospital janitors that I talked to you about a few lectures ago, the ones I described who were doing things beyond what was in their official job description. What they did, interacting with patients, interacting with patient families, finding ways to be helpful to nurses, all of that requires wisdom, but it also requires thinking of your job as directly connected to the mission of your organization. You know, it's true that you could be mopping floors in an office building just as you're mopping floors in a uh, hospital. But if you think that your presence in a hospital matters, then you think that keeping the place clean is an essential contribution to preventing disease, curing disease, and easing suffering. And you, the floor mopper, have as, just as an important role to play as the uh, uh, internist who is uh, you know, taking vital signs and making medication decisions. And the critical thing about some of the janitors, not all of them, but some of them, is that they thought they were in the business of curing disease, not in the business of mopping floors. Made all the difference. Haircutters. Research has been done on um, hairstylists who need a lot of technical proficiency when it comes to shaping hair and coloring hair and all of that stuff. But what they say when you interview them is that the most important skill they have is the skill of managing interactions with their clients. It's the hardest thing to do, and it's the one they find most rewarding. This woman comes in with a photograph of a haircut that she wants that looks great on a very thin face and will look terrible on her round face. And your job is somehow to find a way to convince her To want something different, to manage the conversation so that she changes her mind about what she wants and then feels good about what she gets. So the technical skill is critical, but being a successful hairdresser requires much more than technical skill. And this is not a trivial thing. You know, the woman walks out from the salon And her mood, how she feels about herself for the next several weeks may be affected by how good a job you do in partnership with her in giving her the hair styling that that's the right hair styling for her. Another example, many, many private universities, public ones too, employ students to call alumni and ask them to make contributions to some alumni fund, often for scholarships. So these students will come in and get paid to cold call alums and say, would you like to contribute to the bloody blah scholarship fund? Uh, This is a low success enterprise. Most people don't even answer the phone. If they do, they don't let you finish. If they let you finish, they say, no, I paid enough to get my education. So a psychologist named Adam Grant did a study where half of the students who would be trying to raise money before they did their phone calling, they saw an interview that lasted less than 10 minutes with somebody who had recently graduated from the institution. And what this person said in that interview was, Given my circumstances, I would never have been able to go to this school without a scholarship. And I got the scholarship because of the efforts of people like you soliciting contributions from alumni. My education here has changed my life and it would not have been possible without the work you've done. I'm very grateful. That's it. Well, alumni contributions that were produced by the people who heard that little speech tripled. They weren't given any new techniques for soliciting money. What was happening is that they were directly connected to the mission that their activity was serving. They were not simply punching their clock to get paid and get hung up on. They were there to help students in tight financial circumstances, get the opportunity to study at this institution. And all of a sudden, they just couldn't do it hard enough and well enough because it was so important. Reminding people of the mission and that it's a mission that's admirable, even noble, makes a huge difference. I'll give you one last example. This involves a man named Ray Anderson who was a very successful manufacturer of carpet tile. His company manufactured the sorts of things you see when you're in public spaces like airport terminals, these squares of carpet uh, that line the floors in public spaces. And um, he was extremely successful. He made a huge pile of money. But he had this awakening one day that he was going to retire... Leaving a huge um, estate for his grandchildren and a a planet they wouldn't be able to live in. Because it turned out the production process that um, went in, that they used to make this carpet tile, left an extremely large environmental footprint. And so he was enriching himself and his family and poisoning the earth every day. And he decided that from that day forward, Their mission would be to change the production process and reduce their environmental footprint to zero. He knew that this would cost him substantially, that profits would really take a hit. He didn't care. He had all the money he needed. His interest was in the future of the earth for his grandchildren. He was willing to take the profit hit. And so they embarked on a 10 year, 15 year campaign to reduce the environmental footprint to zero. Unfortunately, he died while this campaign was in the middle, but it had already reduced its environmental footprint by more than half before he died. And the extraordinary thing is that with each step they made in the production process to reduce pollution, profits went up, not down. They made more money, not less money. And the question is why? And his answer was that the people who worked in the factory were no longer just producing carpet tile. Now, what they were doing was saving the planet. And this was an incredibly motivating thing for the people who worked there. So they came in every day and worked extremely hard. They came in every day full of ideas about ways to change production to lower the environmental footprint even more. They cared about the work they did in a way they hadn't when basically they were just working to get a paycheck. He hadn't anticipated this. He was astonished by it. But, uh, you know, it was incredibly gratifying. And in some ways, the most important lesson he learned was that if you treat your employees like people who care about the mission and you create a mission that's worth caring about they will go through fire for you and for the company. Mission-driven, autonomy, discretion for employees, social engagement, flexibility, but I think most important is the first, mission-driven. If people care about the work they do and they think that it. In some way, make somebody's life better, they will do the work more efficiently, more accurately, and to a higher standard of quality. And this is even true when you're thinking about ordinary retail. Think about a retail store in the mall, and we'll end with this example. There are two ways to think about your job as a retail salesperson. One way to think about it is I'm here to sell as much stuff as I possibly can. Second way to think about it is everybody who comes into my store has a problem. I'm here to solve problems. And sometimes that may mean selling less than the people came in to buy. Sometimes it may mean selling more. Sometimes it may mean selling nothing. But the point is everybody who walks out of this store came in with a problem that I helped to solve, which means that every day... I make the lives of 50, 75, 100 people just a little tiny bit better than their lives were before they came in. If that's the attitude you take toward retail sales, all of a sudden, you are not in the business of selling junk to people. You are in the business of making people's lives better. And that creates a kind of meaning and purpose that makes the work People do, mundane though it may be, much more satisfying, and it makes their engagement much greater, and it makes the quality of their work much higher. The aim here is to make as much work as possible that people do, work that takes advantage of and nurtures the wisdom people have about treating other people in the right way.
3: So finding the why of what you do really can make a difference. We hope that you can take some of these lessons into your own workplace as well. Next time on The Happiness Formula, how to be a good friend. The Happiness Formula from One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, Leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more.
1: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
2: podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers.